church, I just want to say how much I love you. How thankful I am to be one of your pastors. How thankful I am to be part of this family. Love you all. What a joy to be here together this morning. Um, all right. If you want to grab your Bibles and let's turn to the Gospel of John. If you're looking at the black Bible in the chair uh, that you're sitting on or around you, the Gospel of John chapter 15 is found on page 901, I think. We're going to go with that number today. Uh, And let me encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time this morning as we read God's Word, as we listen carefully to what he is saying, and even as Pastor Tyrone has has prayed that the Lord would would help us as we seek to testify uh, to each other about who Jesus is. I doubt that Jesus would make a good car salesman. No offense to car salesmen, but in Luke 9, he comes to uh, his people and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not one of the best sorts of advertisements. Because some people hear Jesus' words in Luke 9 and it sounds like the invitation is to Come and be miserable. Take everything that makes you happy, everything you love, and trample on it. And that's what they hear when they hear Jesus' invitation. And I think that's what Satan wants you to hear. It's the very lie that he whispered to Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, when he said, you know, come on, joy is not found in submitting to God Joy is found when you're your own boss, when you're your own authority. Don't you want to be free, Eve? Friends, in a world that we live in that prizes individualism, the call of Jesus to deny ourselves can invoke the fear that we'll lose everything that makes me Me, my dreams, my desires, my achievements, these things that make me me. And so this idea of denying ourselves invokes the fear that we're going to lose ourselves. But what if, what if instead of Jesus selling us a lie, Jesus is actually telling us the truth in love? That in self-denial, we don't lose ourself. We actually find our true self. Luke 9, 24, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. God's ways are not our ways, are they? God's path to life, God's path to joy is counterintuitive. God's path to joy requires faith. It requires that we trust him. So what is God's path to joy? What is God's path to life? Well, thankfully, in John 15, Jesus speaks so that our joy may be full. Do you want to have the fullness of joy that he talks about? Anybody? All right, point number one, abide in Christ. Point number one, abide in Christ. And we're going to see this in chapter 15, 
verses 1 through 17 of the text this morning. So let's turn to God's word, chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now to understand what Jesus is saying here in this metaphor, we have to go back to the Old Old Testament, because one of the common metaphors the Old Testament uses to describe the people of God, Israel, is that they are God's vine. We heard that when when Pastor Josh read from Isaiah 5 this morning. But another example, Psalm 80, verse 8, says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, that's Israel, you drove out the nations and planted it. So there we see Israel is this vine that God planted in the promised land. So Israel was planted, he was tended by God to bear fruit. But as you watch the story of this vine of Israel unfold in the Old Testament, what you see, what we see is that Israel fails to keep God's commands. And actually Israel falls into deeper sin, into deeper rebellion. That's why when we heard from Isaiah 5 verse 2, it says, He looked, God looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So this imagery of Israel being God's vine is the background of Jesus' declaration in verse 1 when he says, I am the true vine. That's that's an astounding declaration. Because in saying that he is the true vine, he is saying where Israel failed, where the people of God failed, I'm taking over. I am the true vine. This vine metaphor is pointing forward to me. I've now fulfilled it. I am the true vine. He is the true Israel. And so as one writer puts it, by adopting this imagery and applying it to himself, Jesus declares that our standing as the people of God does not depend on genealogy or a biological descent from Abraham. Our being in the people of God now depends on on our connection to himself. To be part of the vine, one must be connected to Jesus. Whereas the father tended ethnic Israel as his vine in the Old Testament, in the New Covenant, he tends those who are united to Christ by faith. That's amazing. And so this metaphor is... Is it, the metaphor of the vine and the branches is a simple one. It's a, it's a metaphor that depicts dependence and reliance. Life is found in the vine. For the branch to have life, 
it must be connected to the vine. If the branch is not connected to the vine, it does not have life. Because there's not life in the branch, there's life in the vine that goes down into the ground, has roots, and is a living vine. Moreover, Jesus says that his father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. The father is the gardener who tends the vine. He clears away the dead branches and he prunes the living branches. For those of us who are not avid vine dressers, pruning involves cutting parts of the branches away and parts of the fruit so that it bears more fruit. That's what verse two says. It's that it may bear more fruit. And so this pruning process that the vine dresser is involved in is for the good of the plant. But if you're the, vine, if you're the branches and there's shears that are coming to clip parts of your branches away, that hurts. Shears hurt when they clip part of you off. And so when a Christian faces this painful pruning that comes under the hand of God, who is the vine dresser, and it hurts, we are often tempted to self-pity, to anger, or to despair. When the, the pruning process of God hurts, we may look around somewhere else for life and for joy. Because that hurts. I'd rather have a path to life that is a little more comfortable, thank you, a little less painful, a little more of me being in control. But for those who are tempted to look around to other places for true life and true joy, Jesus' instructions are very clear and very simple. You know what they are? Abide. Tempted to look around, go somewhere else? Jesus says, abide. It's a word that means to remain, to stay, to persevere. Jesus repeats the word abide 11 times in our text in chapter 15 so that we don't miss it. The metaphor of the vine and the branches raises several questions, but Rather than kind of walking through one through eight and trying to explain it myself and guess, what's helpful is that verses nine through 16 are Jesus' commentary on that metaphor. So rather than guessing, let's just keep reading and look at verses nine through 16 to understand the, the, the point of the metaphor. So look, at, look, look with me at verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, a little bit of background. John's gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 1, saying that from eternity past, Jesus was God. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, did not exist. He's always existed. In the beginning, the word was God. That's Jesus. And the word was with God, in the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus mentions how the Father has loved him in verse 9, we know that there was never a time when he was not fully loved and cherished 
by God the Father and by God the Holy Spirit. In other words, when God created the universe, when God created you and I, he did not do it because he was lonely or because he was bored. There was no sense of need in him or deficiency in him that thus made him create us. In eternity past, an eternal perfect love has always existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting in the other, each person in the Trinity, infinitely happy because of the adoration and affection and love of the other. Each person in the Father, Son, and in the, in the Godhead, each person is satisfied, each person is content, each person is full of infinite joy and happiness. It's remarkable. And so as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when, 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 when you have something that you love, something that's glorious, what do you do with it? Well, what do you do with it? You share it with a friend. Oh, you gotta check out this song. You gotta taste this food. You gotta watch this show. You gotta look at this sunset. When we see and have something that we love, something that's glorious, we can't, we can't keep it to ourselves. We wanna share that glory with others. God was not a lonely deity creating us in order to get love and affection for himself because he was bored and lonely and needed something. No, he didn't need anything. He has, there was no deficiency in him. He created us to give love and joy and the glory that was within himself. So just try to picture for a moment in your mind how the father loves the son. At his baptism, Jesus said of his son, Oh, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. It's just bubbling over with affection that he's had from eternity past. This is my boy. This is my beloved son. I am delighted in him. Got that? Now look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, you ready for this? So have I loved you. Come on. (laughs) Jesus loves us as with the same type of love the Father has for him. Can you imagine and hear Jesus saying of you, Andrew, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Kevin, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Joanne, you are my daughter with whom I am well pleased. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, if you are a child of God, if you are in Christ, he's loving you that way. He can't contain himself. God's love for his his children seems so over the top, it almost seems scandalous. Too good to be true, and yet it is true. It's his amazing grace. Church, to abide in Christ means to remain in the one who loves you. To abide in Christ means to abide in God's love. That's important to remember because when God's pruning shears hurt, 
remember that everything that he does as your heavenly father, as that perfect vine dresser who never makes a mistake in what he snips, everything he does is right. Everything he cuts is for your good. Everything he does in your life comes from a heart that overflows with love for you. Okay, how then can we abide? Well, Jesus is clear in verse 10, by obeying Jesus' commandments. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, the world tells us that we should be suspicious of all authority. Authority is oppressive. There's no such thing as good authority. We should reject authority. We should be suspicious of it. We should distrust authority. And in some some senses, that's true. Fallen human beings who are in positions of authority misuse authority, but it's not completely true. Not all authority is bad. God has given authority, and it can be used for good, and so we need to kind of listen to what he's saying here. The, you know, we're told by the world that the only authority that we can really trust is the authority of the self. And so be cynical of everybody, other, everybody else, but trust what your heart tells you. That's why when, when, when you hear the command to submit, the world hears that like a four-letter cuss word. And yet Jesus says to us this morning, that submission to God is the path to life and joy. So verse 10 opposes what's natural within us in our fallen state. Verse 10 opposes what the world lies to us about, about the nature of godly authority. And so as hard as that is to believe, I'm very thankful that Jesus actually practices what he preaches. He calls us to keep his commandments in verse 10, but then he goes on at the end of verse 10 saying, yeah, keep my commandments just as I have kept the Father's commandments and I abide in his love. If there's any question about whether or not this is the right path, let's look at Jesus. He models for us that the Father is trustworthy and that this is the path to life and joy. Jesus does not obey the Father in order to earn the Father's love. He's already fully loved in eternity past. He obeys God the Father because he sees the goodness of God the Father, and he knows that there is joy in in him and being in that relationship with him, and so he submits to God the Father. And then he turns around and he invites us this morning into that joy that comes from submitting to him and his commandments and trusting God. If you don't believe that, look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you. The joy that, the, the joy that Jesus has in his relationship with God the Father, he says, I want that joy to be in you and that your joy may be full. It reminds me of Psalm 16 when he says, in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. That's what he's talking about. This joy friends, is far from a cheap, pasted-on smile that you can get from Kmart. It's, it's far from a happiness that depends on the circumstances of your life being just right, and then you can be happy. Now, this is different. This joy that Jesus is talking about is otherworldly. It's, your world can be falling apart, but because your joy is rooted in Christ and you're abiding in him, 
It's a joy that means contentment, satisfaction, and hopefulness from being connected to the vine. The same joy and contentment and, and, and fulfillment that, that, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit know in their relationship to each other. That's the joy he's talking about. And friends, when I look around this room, I am so encouraged by the people who I know as one of your pastors have endured hardship and you have reason to be bitter, but instead you have demonstrated day after day, week after week, month after month, month a joy that comes not from your circumstances being just right, but a joy that comes from you abiding in Christ. When you meet these folks in this church, you might think, well, they've got a reason to complain. Life's been hard. But you won't get a complaint from them. You talk to these folks and you'll be encouraged by them. I think of people in this room like Joanne Proctor, Jackie Jones, Mike Whitaker, Carol Schaff, Pastor Bertram. And I could keep going on and seeing evidence and evidence and evidence of God's grace in people in this church, this joy that I see in you. And I praise God for that. And, and friends, that joy that comes from abiding in the vine that I see in so many of you, that joy is contagious. I see that in you and I'm like, I want that joy. I want to hang out with you so that joy can rub off on me. And so church, we should pray that we would know as a church collectively this joy, the fullness of joy that Jesus is talking about. Pray that we would experience that more and more and more as a witness to this world. We abide in God's love. We abide in the vine, he says in verse 10, by keeping his commandments. There's a lot of commandments though, right? Which ones then? Look at verse 12. Very thankfully, verse 12, this is my commandment. <laughs> that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No greater love, no, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, it should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So the command, if you're wondering what command, the command Jesus has in mind, I think, is the command to love. We see it in verse 12, we see it in verse 17, and those two commands to love are then the bookends of this paragraph to make the point that this is his point in this paragraph. We are to love one another. How? As he loved us. That means as he washed his disciples' feet back in chapter 13, including the feet of the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. To love one another as he'd lay down his life for them, as he mentions in verse 13. In other words, we love one another as a church family by denying ourselves for the well-being of the other. That's really good. But let's be honest for a second. When you're hanging on by a thread because of a really difficult week, 
when you're undergoing the painful pruning of the vine dresser and you're hanging on by a thread, that command to love one another as Christ has loved us, it can feel like, Jesus, I'm drowning here and instead of throwing me a life preserver, you just throw me another brick. Here's one more thing for you to do. You ever feel like that? I'm already at my wit's end and he gives me one more thing to do. So friends, the need to love others, we need to remember, the, the need to love others does not go away when life gets hard. If you're a parent, you know that full well. You can't say at 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm done changing your diapers. You gotta get up. And that's true of the church too. The, the call to love one another does not vanish when life is hard. But, get, but again, don't forget, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are always wise, they are always right, and they are always good. And so this command to love one another, it's not burdensome. What it does is it makes us conscious of our need for Jesus. Because friends, we often forget or deceive ourselves that we don't need him. We sing that song, we agree in our heads that we need Jesus, but we live our week like we don't need him. And so this command to love as Jesus has loved us is a reminder, okay, you wanna know how conscious you are of, my, of your need for me? Let me show you how. Obey this command. Oh man, now I need him. That's right. We stop relying on our very pathetic and short-lived resources that are in ourselves, and we finally abide in the vine that truly gives life. And friends, this vine does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. He gives strength to the weary. He gives power to the weak. So we keep abiding, we keep abiding, we keep abiding. Well, how then are we to view God as we strive to obey him in this command to love? Should we see God like a taskmaster, arms crossed, scowling at us, waiting for us to screw up? I <laughs> give him a command to love. Let's see him do this. Is that how we should be, see God? Some of us see God like that. Arms crossed, whip in hand, and as a taskmaster. But how does Jesus say we should see God? Look at verse 15. He says, I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Church, when you are lonely, when your friends let you down, when you feel worthless because it seems like you have no friends, remember what Jesus says to you in verse 15. The creator of the universe, the God who holds the universe together by the power of his word, he's not only, he's not only mindful of you, to those who are in Christ, he calls you his friend. He's not ashamed to call you his friend. He does not keep us at his arm's length like a stranger. He welcomes us into his inner circle. He shares his heart with us. He shares all that the Father has told him. Again, this is remarkable. God is calling you friend. Don't just gloss over that. That's remarkable. We were once his enemies. And now we're his friends. Why? Because something we did? No. Now to be sure, Jesus calling us his friend does not mean that we're his peer. 
It doesn't mean that we're buddy-buddy, chummy-chummy with him, that we obey his commands and he obeys our commands. No, it's not. It doesn't work that way, right? He is our friend, but he's still our king. And in verse 14, he makes that clear. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That friendship does not dissolve the kingship relationship that we have with him. But the king we revere and we obey is our friend. Praise God for that. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're kind of checking things out. Would you call yourself a friend of God? If I asked you, are, is God your friend? Are you his friend? How would you answer that? The litmus test that Jesus gives us for how we can answer that is in verse 14. You are my friends. How do we know? If I feel it deep in my heart, if I, if I just say it, if I declare it, if I go to church, how do we know if we're his friends? You are my friends if you do what I command. So have you always done what God commanded you? If you're honest, the answer is no. None of us have. The Apostle Paul writes that in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it, it, but just because we're all sinners does not get us off the hook with a holy God. He does not grade us on a, on a bell curve. Sin is more than making a mistake. Sin is rebellion. Sin against God is cosmic treason, whereby we declare ourselves and make ourselves enemies of God. And no amount of good works, no amount of religion can make an enemy of God his friend. Jesus has been very clear that the only way to be reconciled to God is to be in the vine, in Christ. Jesus is the only one who can make an enemy of God the friend of God. Well, how does he do that? Verse 13 makes it clear. Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. Friends, in, in, in dying on the cross, Jesus the sinless son of God had no sin to give an account for. He died on the cross to die as our substitute. So that on the cross, Jesus, the son of God, to take, could take on himself the penalty that our sins deserve, the sins that, of anyone who would trust in Jesus. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and now he lives to offer friendship to those who are his enemies. It requires humility. It requires admitting that we are his enemies and that we need his help. We can't do this ourselves. But friends, if you hear God's voice this morning in the pages of scripture, my, my, my encouragement, my, I implore you that you would turn from your sin, that you would abandon every hope that you can be a good enough person on your own merit and that you would trust in Christ and him alone today. And if you do, he, opens, he welcomes you with open arms as his friend. The life that you and I are created for is the life that's found in Christ. Trust in him. One reason that Jesus repeats the command to love in chapter 15 is because he's talking to his disciples, not just as individuals, but as a group. Verse five says, I am the vine You 
are the branches. The you there is y'all. It's plural. He's saying you all, disciples, are the branches. So there are many branches, but all of those branches are connected to the same vine. It's not different vines. It's not like some Christians over there, some Christians over there. It's like, no, if you're a Christian, we're all connected to the same vine, whether you like it or not. So you may not like me, but if we're in the same vine, we're part of the same group. And so he's calling them to love. The, the branches with all their differences, with all their quirks, with all their disagreements are united in Jesus Christ who is the vine so that we have to learn to love each other and learn to work together. And as we do, we recognize this is impossible. We can't do this apart from God, but that's the point. We're not trying to do something that we can do in our own strength. Look at verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, in the local church, we enter into a covenant. When you become a member of a church, you enter into a covenant with other believers and you do more than just put a stake in the ground and saying, we're Christians. No, 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 you're doing more than that. We're proving that we are Christians by our love for one another. To love when it's costly, to love when it's inconvenient, to love when the other person in the church is unlovely, gets on your nerves, disagrees with you, or makes you angry. You still love them. And by, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We don't, earn, we don't keep God's commandments. We don't love to earn a place in the vine. We love and we keep his commandments because we are in the vine. If a branch is connected to Jesus, listen carefully. If a, if, a, if a branch is connected to Jesus, that person is a is a Christian. That person is a true believer. And a true believer, a true Christian, will bear fruit, including the fruit of love for other people in that church. The fruitfulness, listen to this, the fruitfulness of a branch is not dependent upon its effectiveness or how cool of a branch it is, how smart of a branch it is, how good of a branch it is. No, the, the fruitfulness of the branch is dependent upon not its effectiveness, it's dependent upon God's choice. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you. Why did he appoint them? Why did he appoint the believers? That you should go and bear fruit. See what he's saying? He's saying, I, I'm, I'm the one behind you bearing fruit. I chose you and I appointed you and I'm gonna make you bear fruit as the vine. You connect yourself to me, I wanna make you bear fruit. No one gets to heaven and says, yep, yeah. you know what? I was better than another pagan who didn't choose God. You're welcome, God. No one will say that. There is no boasting in heaven. God's choice of an individual is not based upon their goodness or their, their intelligence or anything in them. It is his sovereign grace. He chose you because he chose you. He loved you because he loved you. It's nothing within yourself. It is his grace. By grace, you have been saved so that you and I would be trophies of his grace. There is no boasting at the foot of the cross. 
But I recognize that any talk about proving ourselves to be a disciple, when you read verse 6, for instance, in chapter 15, and you hear Jesus talking about a branch that would be burned, well, it raises a sobering question that we need to face square on this morning. Can a true believer lose their salvation? I think given that Jesus is talking to the remaining 11 disciples after we just saw what happened in chapter 13 when Judas left and went out to betray Jesus, we recognize that he's not of the disciples, that he's not a believer. I think that it seems that we should think of Judas as the branch that did not abide in the vine. And Judas serves as a warning to the reader. We can go to church We can be a member of a church. We can be baptized. We can be really religious. We can be around Jesus without trusting in Jesus. We can be religious. We can be raised in a Christian home and yet not be born again. Not in the true vine. In the New Testament, The question is not, can you lose your salvation? The way that the New Testament asks this question is, are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, you cannot, you will not lose your salvation. John 10, same gospel we've been reading. John 10, 28, Jesus said of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Unless you or something in your life is stronger than Jesus, you are safe and secure in the hands of your shepherd. No one will snatch you from his hand. Amen? Philippians 1.6, Paul assures us, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Unless God is unfaithful, he will finish what he began in you. The question is not, can a true believer lose their salvation? The question is, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? And a true believer cannot lose their salvation because true faith, genuine faith, does not just start the race. True faith finishes the race. Church, this is why we gather. This is why you join a church. Because as we live our life together, God uses our life together to clarify those things, to prove that we are disciples. It's meant to be a, an assurance of faith kind of cooperative where God uses our life together to, to grow us in our assurance that, yeah, I am a believer. Why? Because I love you. And left to myself, I would not love you. And you would not love me. But look at us. We're not doing it perfectly. But by God's grace, we are. And, that, and, and, and as we love each other, it drives out the fear that we're not his. Because the only reason we're doing this is because of God's work in us. This is, why we, this is not just something we do on Sunday. This is, this, is, this is God's call for us to gather like this so that we can build each other up and strengthen our faith and stir each other up to love and to good deeds. Even when, I'd even say especially when loving each other is not easy, God strengthens our faith through the church. The path to joy starts with a call to abide in Christ. Point number two, what's the path to joy involve? Accept the hardships of Christ. 
Number two, accept the hardships of Christ. And, and Jesus is gonna make this point in chapter 15, verse 18, all the way to 16, verse four. And this is a briefer point. So look at, look at me at chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, persecute, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me, both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. At the start of John 15, Jesus emphasizes the power of love, God's love for him, his love for the church, and the Christian's love for each other. But in verse 18, he changes direction. Now he looks at the power of hate. He's looking at the haters. He refers to hate eight times in the rest of chapter 15 and 16. And and, and we know what's going to happen next. In, In a matter of an hour or two, he's going to be arrested, mocked, whipped, punched, spat on, and then nailed to a cross and crucified. And if that's how they treated Jesus, what should his followers expect in terms of their treatment from the world? Jesus does not want us to be surprised, caught off guard. We should expect hatred from the world because it hated him. And let me be clear, I don't think he's saying this to discourage you or to deflate you this morning. I think he's saying this not only to prepare us, but that our joy may be in the full. Skip down to chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I have said all these things to keep you from following away. So if life and joy is found by abiding in Christ, then Jesus' words here, however hard they might be, are designed to keep us in him, to keep us on the path of life and joy so that we don't fall away from him. They're hard, but they're for our joy and for our life and for our good. Jesus mentions a lot of hate that is aimed at him. But one question that you gotta ask is, why would anyone hate Jesus, right? I mean, when you look at his life on earth, it's not like he robbed a bank or told a lie or murdered anyone or raped anyone. When you watch Jesus in the the Gospels, he heals the sick, he comforts the outcast, he speaks the truth. He maintains perfect integrity. So why all these haters? Why do these people hate Jesus and his disciples that would follow? Well, Jesus is clear here. Because as the light of the world, when you meet Jesus, he exposes sin. And we don't like that. Look down at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, you gotta be careful how you read that. Jesus is not saying that the world was sinless before he came and now that he came, 
now they're guilty. No, that's not what he's saying. Like, that's very clear from John's gospel. He's actually saying quite the opposite. He, what he's saying is that when, when Jesus came on the scene as the light of the world, he convicted them of their sin by what he said, by how he lived, by how he loved. He convicted them of their sin. If they had not seen Jesus or heard Jesus, they'd still be in the dark. They would be clueless. They would be oblivious to how sinful and corrupt and perverse they are, even before Jesus came. But Jesus came and flipped the lights on. And when they and when he flipped the lights on, they didn't like it. It's like, Jesus, we had a good thing going here. Now you come and ruin what's going on here. We don't like you. And rather than turning to Jesus for mercy and turning to Jesus for in repentance, they hate Jesus. And they do everything they can to turn the light off so they can keep their way of life. The world loves the praise of man and the world loves the right to do what they want when they want. The world hates Jesus for that reason. And Jesus told us this way back in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. John 3, verses 19 and 20. We see that played out right now. Now in the West where we live, I think... We typically think of the fear of, pers- when, we think, when we hear of persecution as Christians, we tend to think of political issues that are opposed to biblical teaching. And, and to be sure, that's true. But it's much more than political issues. In his book, uh, God in the Wasteland, David Wells defines worldliness as anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's a good definition of worldliness. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. With that definition of worldliness, we we realize that the world can normalize sin, sins like greed or anger or lust or pride. The world can normalize sin without us even noticing it. Who changed the rules here? It just happened and it's like now these things are okay. I remember when we lived in Chicago, my friend who was a police officer, when he refused to pocket the drug money that was at the scene of a crime, his partner hated him for it because his refusal turned the light on his partner who was pocketing the money. For those who wait to have sex until they are married according to God's design, for those who maintain sexual purity in an over-sexualized world, just wait a little bit and you will soon feel the world's resentment. In fact, Hollywood creates movies aimed at mocking you for your obedience to God in that area. If someone comes to you this week with some juicy gossip and you say, no thank you, I I don't want to listen to the gossip, you very likely will lose friends because you refuse to join in to that gossip. It's like you turn the lights on what they're doing and, and they don't like that. The point is that following Jesus puts you on a stream that is going the opposite direction of the flow of the world. And so we should expect hostility. We should expect hatred. We should expect persecution. And I think receiving the world's animosity because of Jesus is in itself reassuring to us in one sense. 
because it reminds us that the aim of that hatred is not aimed at us personally, but it's because of our association with Jesus. And I think that helps. The apostles in Acts 5 rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Acts 5.41. But however much assurance that might give us, I still think we have to ask the question, man, this is not easy. How are we as the church, how are we as Christians going to endure hostility and persecution and hatred? How can we do it? All these haters, how can we endure? We can endure with the helper. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see Jesus again saying these words to prepare them and to gird them for the the hostility that is coming. Jesus, listen, Jesus did not leave his disciples in the world for no other purpose than to endure hatred. If that was the case, I think that would be mean. (laughs) The helper is the spirit of truth. And what 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 does the spirit of truth do? According to verse 26, he bears witness to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. And then look at verse 27. And you also will bear witness. Church, that is why Jesus left the disciples behind. And as Jesus came in love to a world that hated him, he sends us into a world that is hostile to us, to Jesus, in order to declare the saving truths about Jesus to testify about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how life is found in him. So we should not candy coat this. This is hard. Evangelism is hard. It can be costly. And and as we share the good news of Jesus with others, we can at times be tempted to lose heart. Why is this person not changing? Why does this person respond the way they do? Why is this taking so long? Why is God not changing this person? We can be tempted to lose heart. But I think there's several encouragements here. We need to remember that it's worth it. In evangelism, we are called to something that lasts beyond ourselves. We are called to bear fruit, he says in verse 16, that abides, that has eternal significance. What are you giving your life to that has eternal significance? This is one of them. Church, when you look back at the end of your life, you will not regret taking risk to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not look back and say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You will be glad that you did and took every risk to share Christ with those around you. But I also think it's encouraging to remember that God is sovereign over the world's hatred. Do you notice that in verse 25? He says, the word of God must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. He's looking back at the Old Testament, back to the Psalms, and he's saying the world's hatred of Christ, the world's hatred of his disciples, was, is, is actually foretold before it happened. It's not an accident. It's actually, the world's hatred is actually a fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. Therefore, because he's sovereign over the world's hatred, he can even use the world's hatred for our good. 
It's encouraging. And finally, we need to remember that the Spirit helps us in this task. It's not like, it's not like he just sends us off to evangelize the world and says, good luck. He does it and calls us to join him. Listen, if, if LeBron James joins my boys' neighborhood two-on-two basketball game, they're going to win. They got LeBron James, right? They're going to win. We have the privilege of testifying to the world about the good news of Jesus, about who he is. But let's not kid ourselves. He does the work. He involves us, but he does the work. He changes hearts and minds. He raises the the spiritual dead to life. He brings conviction of sin, not us. And knowing that church is what helps us to proclaim the good news and pray and love and then put our head on the pillow at night and sleep like a baby. In John, the world is a created moral order that is in rebellion against God. I think what Jesus is reminding us is that the world is far from neutral. You don't just kind of come into the world and it's like, whatever. No, the world is opposed to God. The world hates God. And it uses its resources to get God's people to conform. Conform. Be like us. Go with the flow. Don't go with Jesus. And when you face that hostility... It's tempting to conform to the world because, as Jesus says, then the world would love you as its own. No more hatred. No more hostility. I can get my inner tube and go with the world into death. That's why Jesus says through, or God says through Paul in Romans 12, do not be conformed the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God's doing that right now through his word. The text presents a choice for us. Either the acceptance of the world or faithfulness to Jesus. Either the approval of the world or the help of the Holy Spirit. Which will you choose? It's not an easy choice when the world hates you as it does. But Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? He is the true vine. And so we Christians choose to abide in Christ, not because it's easy, and not because we like pain. We choose to abide in Christ because we choose life. Because we believe that Jesus is better. We believe that Jesus is our joy. So with that in mind, let me give five very, very brief applications to help us abide in Christ in a world that hates him. Five applications. Number one, be conscious of your need for Jesus. Simple truth. He's the vine. We're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Remember that. Application number two, hide God's word in your heart. This is why we're memorizing Romans 8 together, church. We're trying to hide God's word in our heart. Uh, uh, John 15, 7 talks about the importance of God's word abiding in us. Uh, John 16, verse 1 shows that God's word keeps us from falling away. 
We must, keep, we must pay careful attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So church, make it your habit to daily read God's word, study God's word, listen to God's word, and memorize God's word. It is essential to abiding in and remaining in Christ. Be conscious of your need for Jesus. Hide God's word in your heart. Number three, pray God's word. Pray God's word. Jesus again says in John 15, 7, if my word abides in you, ask, pray, whatever you wish, and it will be done. The Bible should guide us in what we pray for and then guide us in how we pray about those things. Now, prayer is not a blank check for selfish desires. We saw that last week in chapter 14. Prayer does not, uh, uh, praying in Jesus' name is not turn God into this uh, magic genie who gives us our wishes for selfish desires. Prayer is us crying out to God in reliance of him. It's receiving his care. It's enjoying his intimacy. And it's how we abide in Christ. Pray God's word. Number four, prioritize the local church. Prioritize the local church. Some may think, you know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. But don't forget that Jesus died for his bride. He loves the church. And for that reason, so should you. So should I. The church is God's gift to us that we might abide in Christ. Do you love the church? Number five, obey the command to love. Last last application here, obey the command to love. Is there someone in your life who's difficult for you to love? (laughs) Are you difficult to love? Yes, I am. God knows that you don't have it in you to love that person. That's why he calls you and I to abide in Christ. So don't wait for the warm, fuzzy feelings to come until you act on that love. Act on that love. Do the things that are loving towards that person. Ask God for help as you don't feel loving towards that person. Take the risk. Step out in faith and love as God commands, and he'll meet you there. The life that is in the vine will not run dry. In your moment of need, God will provide you the love that you lack. He will reveal himself to you. He will show up, and you will know the joy of abiding in Christ. Let's pray together.